Today on Context, a COVID-19 report card for the government. How do Canadians feel the second wave of the pandemic is being handled? Confusion over vaccines at arenas and medical clinics and hospitals and only 2 million people vaccinated so far. 71% of Canadians say that they're angry that Canada has fallen behind the UK and the US. Ipsos Public Affairs Global CEO Daryl Bricker is here to talk about the pulse of Canadians during these trying and difficult times. Many experts are also asking what went wrong with Canada's early pandemic alert system. And as a Mississauga newspaper reports, international travelers arriving at Toronto's Pearson Airport are taking fines instead of quarantining. In Alberta, a pastor is still in jail for refusing to sign a bail condition to not attend or hold church services. We hear from one of the lawyers in that case who says forced quarantine hotels go against Canadians' legal rights. Plus, major concern in Canada's school systems. Some parents and students are at their breaking point. So are the teachers. A board chair and a union president talk about the frustrations of remote learning during lockdown. And Cardiff Vice President Ray Pennings gives us a long-term look on the economy. But first, Maggie John now with intelligence expert and professor Wesley Wark. How did Canada miss the early warning signs of the COVID-19 pandemic, especially after our successful containment of SARS and H1N1? Intelligence experts are sounding the alarm, saying there was no excuse for the failure. And our government needs to learn from this valuable lesson. Professor Wesley Wark is a specialist in international affairs and intelligence. Thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Now, after a pneumonic plague hit India, Canada developed the Global Public Health Intelligence Network, which was essentially a medical amber alert system. It was designed to detect pandemics, and yet it took our government until March 16, 2020, last year, to increase the risk level in this country. Why did this happen, Professor Wark? Well, that's that's a good question. It's an important question. I don't think we have all the answers yet. Uh, we just know that something terribly wrong uh, occurred. We should have had much better, much earlier warning about the devastation that COVID was going to bring to our shores. And uh, the Global Public Health Intelligence Network, which you mentioned, was, was a very specific and unique instrument that was supposed to contribute to that. It, it was really quite unique in the world. It was developed by Canada in the late 1990s. It was the only state-supported kind of early warning system that used what's called open source intelligence or basically media scanning to look for you know, sudden items of news around the world from, from various forms of, of media that might indicate that something unusual was going on in that part of the country, that perhaps the government authorities in that country weren't yet alert to or weren't prepared to talk about um, more globally. So it was meant to be an important part of an early warning system. But the Global Public Health Intelligence Network had been downgraded by our Public Health Agency of Canada. Uh, some of the ways in which it was meant to function uh, had ceased before COVID struck. And in addition to that, even to the extent that it was working, the real problem we faced in Canada was that even though we had some sources of information from the WHO, from, from China, from allies, from our own sources about the nature of COVID, we, we were not able to put that information together in such a way that we could generate what are called threat assessments or risk assessments that would say, you know, here's the nature of the risk, 
here's how serious it is, you know, and we have to start taking precautions in, in response. Basically, from early January 2020, when news of COVID began to circulate globally, down to the middle of March 2020, you know, that's a, a three and a half month period, uh, we did not essentially clue in to the risk posed by COVID-19. And that was a terrible failure. I, I call it a failure of intelligence, because I think that's what it was. You, you say that um, you know, all they needed to do was rely on intelligence and satellite imagery um, to see what was happening in China. It was as simple as that if we weren't going to rely on the global uh, public health intelligence network. So I, I don't want to make it sound, sound too simple. It, yeah. The problem might, might have been complex. The, 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 the problem we had was that we didn't you know, throw all the available tools that we had at that, at that um, problem. We didn't use the Global Public Health Intelligence Network well. We didn't use uh, information from our allies well. We didn't turn our own intelligence gathering capabilities to that problem. And what ultimately you, you really need is a combination of different kinds of sources. We don't have our own kind of signals, you know, signals intelligence or spy satellites up there in the sky, but our allies do and they share that product with us. You know, if, if we had taken this as a, as a serious intelligence problem at the outset, we could have thrown all kinds of resources at it to get at the heart of the problem in ways that the Chinese government, certainly in the early weeks of the outbreak, were not being, not really prepared to tell the world the full story of. What do you think could have happened if Canada had acted sooner? Well, all kinds of cascading responses should have taken place. Uh, the two key things that I think, um, you know, come, well, perhaps three, come to mind, uh, and very quickly. One is that we could have moved much, much sooner to uh, really to stop travel into Canada, uh, to erect strong walls at the border. We're still working at that, as, as, as your listeners will know. Um, secondly, we could have taken measures to prepare ourselves for the arrival of COVID, including uh, enhancing our stockpile capacity, which was at a pretty low ebb uh, in, in the early months of COVID-19. And the third and important thing is that the government, if it had believed in the threat itself and had the sources of information available to it to convince itself of the threat, could also have communicated uh, much earlier with the Canadian public to say, not, not to you know, worry people or throw people into a panic, but to say, this is the reality of what's coming. These are the kinds of measures that we need to start taking. So, you know, all of those social distancing, uh, social hygiene measures, border closures, better public communications, better understanding of the threat, all of that could have happened much earlier than it did in Canada. So what kind of shape do you think we're in now as a country and, and what have we learned from this valuable lesson? I think we're still in the midst of trying to learn lessons. And, and the problem is we keep being overwhelmed by, by waves of COVID-19, which we should have expected and didn't clearly. So we're in the second wave. There's great fear there'll be a, a third wave as new variants take hold. You know, so um, sooner or later, learning lessons has to catch up with, with the present. I don't think we're, we're quite there yet. I think the federal government's view was that they would wait out COVID and then learn lessons from it for, for the next one that they hope, you know, would be many years down the road. That's really not the reality of global pandemics anymore. They can come anytime from anywhere at, at any kind of speed and velocity and, and threat. And so we should be learning lessons now, but I think we're so immersed in the kind of day-to-day effort to deal with the crisis that there hasn't been a whole lot of opportunity to do that yet. All right, Professor Wesley Wark, thank you so much for your time today. Get a hotel, and that is very stressful in the pocket. And the, the price tag is really, 
It's really too high. Uh, yeah, I, I have one. I have one. Yes, and I like it too good. It's good to, to serve the community, to protect the community. It's it's very good for that. Yes, I'm going to an Airbnb for two weeks, so I don't think it's it's just fair. It's fair for me to pay for a hotel while I already pay for an Airbnb to cover my my quarantine process. When Prime Minister Trudeau announced that air travelers returning to Canada from non-essential international trips would have to quarantine in an approved hotel at their own expense for up to 72 hours while they wait for a negative COVID test, understandably, this had many human rights advocates asking, is this legal? The Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms in Calgary, Alberta, has filed legal action against the government. Jay Cameron is the litigation director at the Justice Center and joins us now. Thanks so much for joining us today, Jay. Now, what is the Justice Center's primary concern about this new mandate? We're concerned that this is a complete overriding of Canadian civil liberties. Uh, specifically, there's a constitutional right under Section 6 to enter and leave Canada. Uh, the right to liberty and security of the person, the right not to be arbitrarily detained or imprisoned. There's a right to retain counsel, and there's a right not to be subjected to cruel and unusual punishment. There's also a right to appear in front of a judge within 24 hours upon detention or arrest. And there's a right to a bail hearing. And so these orders, uh, the requirement to forcibly confine yourselves in a federal facility, uh, are, are an overriding of all of those things. And so uh, somebody who is accused of homicide has a right to a bail hearing, a lawyer, to appear before the judge. But if you're a citizen returning to their own country, you have none of those rights. There's also a lot of confusion. Some are claiming a three-hour wait for a COVID test at the airport when they arrive. As we know, this, this uh, mandate just started recently. Uh, there are claims that there's only one phone number to book hotels uh, to quarantine through this forced quarantining. Uh, are the rules being communicated clearly to Canadians, Jay? And so if you test positive for COVID in Canada, you don't have to forcibly quarantine in a hotel. You just go isolate in your house. But if you come back, even if you've, you have a negative test, they're forcibly isolating you. And all of that is just, it's not rational. It's not logical. Um, and it's, our position is, this is un unconstitutional. That's why we've launched the lawsuit. So, so what are our rights as Canadians? Do we have the right to refuse forced hotel stays and travel bans then? Uh, interestingly enough, uh, if you show up at the airport and refuse to go to the hotel and are arrested, you have more rights than the person who is taken uh, to the, the hotel. If you're arrested, you would have a right to appear in front of a judge if you actually are arrested. Uh, and so, um, you know, it has yet to be, it, it remains to be seen how far the federal government is going to push these measures, especially since they are not reflected in the way that COVID is being handled with respect to people who are in the country or who are returning at the land border. All right, Jay Cameron of the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms, thank you so much for your time. How are you feeling? Yeah, you. From the vaccines to lockdowns, this isn't easy for any of us. Well, Daryl Bricker is the global CEO for Ipsos Public Affairs, and he and his team have been asking Canadians how they are faring amid one of the most challenging times we've ever lived through. Thanks so much for joining us today, Daryl. No, thanks for having me on. What has Ipsos found uh, when it comes to how Canadians are feeling about the way the government has handled the pandemic? 
Well, so far, when you take a look at approval numbers for the government, they tend to be pretty good. And that's, by the way, when I say government, I should be saying governments. So whether it's the municipal government, provincial government where people are living, or the national government, the, the results are generally pretty good. But as we get into dealing with this vaccine issue and the rollout of the vaccine, uh, there are some challenges that we're starting to see in terms of government approval. Recent reports show that COVID-19 is a top concern for many Canadians. Can you explain how the pandemic is influencing public trust in the governments? Well, people are really looking at governments and anything in terms of public policy right now in a unidimensional way. Uh, there really is only one issue, and that's dealing with this pandemic. And increasingly, dealing with this pandemic means dealing with the vaccine issue, and that's how the public's really starting to evaluate the performance of governments. Mental health is another cost of the pandemic that we have seen. One of the Ipsos uh, recent polls took a closer look at this. What are Canadians reporting about their mental health? We're struggling. About half of us say that we're really struggling with our mental health right now. 19% of us, and this is 19% of us admitting it on a survey uh, being run by strangers, uh, saying that uh, they're struggling with addiction. It really is this question of loneliness, uh, being locked in our houses, and who's particularly suffering as we go through this are younger people. Wow. Something that we need to, to be mindful of. I thought another interesting uh, scope to your one of your studies was the anger level of Canadians as well. Finding that men tend, are, tend to be a little bit more angry about the situation and the pandemic than women are. Can you delve into that a little bit more? Yeah, 71% of Canadians say that they're angry that Canada has fallen behind the UK and the US in terms of rolling out uh, its vaccine. So we're, we're behind schedule. Men more than women, but just about every question that we ask, men tend to be more taking risks, more upset with being locked up, in general struggling as they move their way through the pandemic. And we hear an awful lot of uh, discussion right now about women at home with children in particular, families at home with children and women especially struggling economically and also trying to balance all of this off. But the people who seem to be the angriest about what's going on right now tend to be men. Wow. If you were to give our government kind of a, a mark, a grade, uh, based on what you've seen across the scope with all of the different surveys that you've done, what grade would you give it? Well, I think uh, Canadians have, have given the government a grade. And if we evaluate all the survey research that we've done, I'd say that to this point, they're saying somewhere between a B and a solid B+. Plus. Uh, but as we move into the vaccine issue and as people's expectations begin to rise about the possibility of being able to get out of these lockdown situations because they become inoculated against the, uh, uh, the coronavirus. If that's not met effectively, then you'll start to see the grades decline. All right, Daryl Bricker of uh, Ipsos Public Affairs, thank you so much for your time today. Coming up, how are our children and parents doing amid lockdowns, online, in-person learning? How is the education system faring one year later? Don Danko of the Hamilton-Wentworth School Board and Harvey Bischoff of the Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation explain. Like to watch more context beyond the headlines? Catch up on any of our shows online. On YouTube, search Context Beyond the Headlines for the most up-to-date episodes and extended content. Listen on the go with Apple, Spotify, or Google Podcast. Check out our reporters' and producers' stories at our website, context.show. Follow us on Instagram at Context Beyond the Headlines and Twitter at Context TV.
There are so many ways to put more context into your life. I want the government to to take our mental health seriously. I've got this one, we've got a baby um, and a toddler. So trying to stretch myself to give everybody what they need has been has been tough. What's gonna make it safe that that you know that we're, it wasn't safe in December and we're not hearing that piece. We're not hearing what they're doing because class sizes aren't get, getting reduced. They haven't really done much about ventilation. A year into this pandemic and children around the country have experienced a variety of educational experiences from online classes to in-person learning to a hybrid of both. Don Danko is the board chair of the Hamilton Wentworth School Board and Harvey Bischoff is the president of the Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation. Harvey, let's start with you. How are your members feeling about the government's handling of the pandemic? Um... You know, troubled in a lot of ways. There certainly they are. Um, they're troubled by by last minute announcements. Troubled by a failure to recognize the uh, extraordinary extra work they've had to put in in order to try to to you know do best for their students during a, a very difficult time. Um, troubled by the fact that the government seems to have uh, put some sort of fiscal imperatives ahead of the safety of of themselves, their students, the families they all go home to, um, and that's probably uh, and and you know on top of that the fact that the government simply refuses to collaborate, consult with um, their voice through OSSTF. There is also much talk about lasting impact the disruption of schooling will have on Ontario students as well as teachers. Don, what are teachers saying in your district? Certainly what I'm hearing from teachers is that uh, we've been doing our absolute best and educators have been doing their absolute best to meet the needs of students going through really tumultuous times. We're in an unprecedented year. This is the most serious health crisis in a century. And we've had so many transitions for our staff and for our students. And so teachers have been trying to navigate how do they best support the learners in their classrooms, knowing that we've got some gaps coming out of the spring when students weren't in regular classes and we did our best through a modified remote learning, um, but also then these transitions, uh, reorganizations that have happened in the fall, the shift to remote learning in January, that's all been a, a significant challenge because uh, when we look at our learner, it's a holistic person and it's about their well-being and their learning experience. Yeah, and I mean, it's affecting in so many areas. We're not even talking about parents as well and how it's impacting them. Um, Harvey, how are teachers feeling? Are, are they feeling safe? Are students feeling safe? There have been two outbreaks and 30-odd COVID-19 cases in the first few weeks of uh, a reopening of school in February, just in Hamilton alone. How are teachers feeling about this? Absolutely not feeling safe. I mean, I, I, I hear regularly um, about or from deeply uh, worried uh, educators. They know that they are in circumstances that wouldn't be allowed in any other public space in the province. They know that they are sometimes in classrooms of 30 or 35 students uh, where there's simply absolutely no room for physical distancing. They know the government has absolutely failure, failed to put in place a ventilation standard to determine whether or not the air quality in their rooms is safe. They've seen this, um, I have to call it pathetic rollout of the, uh, of the asymptomatic testing program, which you know, hardly deserves the name of program uh, because there doesn't seem to be any direction from the ministry. So with all of those things, they absolutely are not feeling safe. So if both of you were to give a grade 
to the Ontario government, because both of you are in Ontario. What would it be when it comes to education? Don, first, how, what, what grade would you give them? Well, if I was an educator, I would give them a grade probably in the fall, and that would have been a D or even an F, uh, because we have some significant challenges. I would say that they are learning. Um, they, we are starting to see some improvements in communication, starting to see some willingness to collaborate. So I think they might be moving up towards a, a C minus, but uh, they still have room to improve. And Harvey, I have seconds left. What's your grade? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I guess I was known as a harder marker when I was in the classroom and I would remain, so I don't see that they, that they achieve a passing grade whatsoever. All right, Don Danko, board chair of the Hamilton-Wentworth School Board and Harvey Biscoff, of the, uh, the president of the Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation. Thank you so much for both of your time. Contacts Katrina DeShiffert hit the streets to find out how residents in her area are coping with the lockdown and vaccine rollout. It's been too long. It makes no sense that we have to walk around with a mask on our face and it's a piece of a cloth. Thanks, Maggie. I'm in downtown Hamilton to speak with a few people about the government's handling of the pandemic. After a year of social distancing and masks, people are tired. Are you hopeful going into the next year? Yes, definitely. I believe that the public health units have had a lot of time to um, refine how they're handling. Uh, the situation and I believe that their ability uh, to treat and, and manage the situation has only increased since last year. Um, I believe the vaccines will help, especially with a lot of vulnerable members of the population. Like he's locking down people's business, people can't go to work. I'm not working right now because of COVID, so like I'm losing money, I have my son. What does he expect people to do? Like I don't understand. It's kind of been hard not being able to see all my friends, but it's for the safety of everyone around us. I know they have to do it, protect other people, but it's really getting heavy with the, the mask and everything. We do the best we can, that's all. Are you hopeful? Yes, very. They keep saying that this new vaccine is going to take care of the variant as well. I hope it does for everybody's sake. It'd be nice to get back to normal. I'm 70. I'm tired. Many Canadians are concerned about the long-term effects this pandemic is having on our economy. From small business closing to pandemic relief efforts like CERB, how will we recover? To help us understand what is really going on, we're joined by Ray Pennings, Executive Vice President of Cardis. Thank you so much for joining us today, Ray. Thank you for having me. So, Ray, will generations to come be paying for this, all of this that we're enduring when it comes to our economy? Well, certainly there, there's a price to be paid, and the price is not just dollars and cents, but it certainly is that. We've obviously had record levels of government um, support and stimulus. Um, that will, obviously, with low interest rates um, as they are and projected for a while, the actual government indebtedness currently is not that significantly different than it might have been in the mid-90s. So those are, we came through that. Economically, there are paths forward that one can see. I think the bigger challenge is going to be in individual lives, people who work in particular sectors that are not going to recover, other people who are working and impacted by um, by, by economic transitions that, um, that will significantly impact their lives. So it will have lifelong impacts for many Canadians, to be sure. Close to $80 billion paid out in the Canadian Emergency Response Benefit, or CERB, last year. Many Canadians who benefited from CERB 
are now heading into an intimidating tax season. Did the government handle this well or wrong? It's, it's easy with 2020 hindsight to, um, to blame government, and I want to be careful in, in terms of that. It was a very quickly delivered program. At the time, I suggested that perhaps using the tax system rather than the separate application process might have been a little easier along the way. One of the downsides of the way they chose is there were no withholdings at source, which means that people are now going to have to declare, in many cases, $16,000 on their tax bill uh, that they haven't had anything uh, withdrawn from. And a lot of people aren't used to um, making that sort of tax planning decisions. IL, the government has in the last few weeks attempted to change some of the rules retroactively. That will lead to a sense of unfairness. On the one hand, they're showing um, compassion for those who applied but might not have been able. On the other hand, there's lots of people who read the rules and did not apply and are going to have a sense of unfairness about $16,000 that their neighbors got um, that they didn't get. So you can look, there's a, there's a lot of mess to be cleaned up as a result of CERB. So, Ray, in a recent article you wrote, COVID-19 has opened the eyes of many to the need of real change that seemed impossible before the, quote, great pause of the pandemic. Can you explain that? Well, I think there's several things. I think most of us assumed that sort of the rat race of life in which we had our lives fully scheduled um, was the only way, and we felt helpless in saying no to things. And then all of a sudden, um, the pandemic said no for us. And we spent time with families. We spent time having meals together. We spent time playing board games. Um, a lot of things happened um, that all of a sudden uh, forced us to reassess our sense of priorities in terms of what was important. And um, I'm hoping that some of those lessons are, um, are more deeply felt and considered and that we won't just go back to the way things were before. Um, obviously, none of us are looking for a continued lockdown, and uh, there were a lot of things that were lost that were pretty important, too. Um, but certainly, it, I think it forced most Canadians to have a reassessment of priorities, and I think that ultimately was a very good thing. Yeah, and as we talk about lessons learned as Christians, what perspective should we be taking when we look at all of this that's been happening? I think there's always three things uh, that, that, that have jumped to mind as I've reflected over the last 11 months on this. First of all, the fact is that in God's providence, um, we are to take the, um, the rain as well as the sunshine. Uh, they all have a purpose in God's plans, and um, we, need to, we need to be humble in that regard and not have a sense of entitlement. I think it was very easy to live as if we were entitled to sort of the middle-class North American Western life with all of the goodies that we had. And uh, that certainly is not the case. I think the second thing that I would highlight is God speaks, he speaks through scripture to us, but he also speaks through general revelation, through the happenings of providence. And I think we need to have our voice, especially our ears, especially as a Western society that has attempted to live very much with a trust in science a trust in self, a trust in autonomy. I think we need to listen to the very powerful voice of God in the midst of it and be attentive to that. Which brings us to the third thing, and that is I don't, there has been a hubris about our culture and our confidence in science. And on the one hand, we can take a look at the remarkable speed with which the vaccine has been put together and all the rest. On the other hand, even in delivering it, we're seeing um, an element of humility that um, it doesn't all quite work out the way it is. And I think 
you know, when all the forces of the economy of Western democracy are all, are all brought to a stop, then I think we, with um, with Paul of old, have to have to say, "You are the potter; we are the clay. You're in charge. Your ways are higher than our ways." All right, Ray Pennings from Cardis. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Hi, I'm Kelvin Mazik, director of Context. We could not produce this program without you, our viewers and our donors. If you'd like to find out how you can support the show, visit crossroads.ca forward slash context or our website, context.show. We'll see you next week and every Wednesday at 9.30 p.m. right here on Yes TV.